Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL. Welcome back. I've got a great interview coming up here in a couple of minutes, but first uh, I'd like to tell you about the show sponsors. Now, I'm not promising anything, but I'm pretty sure you'll become the most popular musician on stage when you show up with one of the Messina covers, cases, or bags. David Messina and Eric Howard are Messina covers, and they produce some absolutely beautiful and functional cases and bags, and you should really check them out, all the options they offer, at messinacovers.net. Peter Pickett picked the perfect people to produce perfectly playable and pitch-perfect products. The Pickett line of custom and stock mouthpieces and the Blackburn line of custom-built trumpets will have you sounding great and looking good too if you carry them in a Messina Covers bag. Find out more about all that Peter and Eric Marine have to offer by visiting PicketBlackburn.com. To stay current on what's going on with Studio HFL, you can follow me on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Studio HFL, and you can watch the live and pre-recorded interviews on the YouTube channel. And of course, while you're there, please go ahead and subscribe. Everything, I do mean everything, is better in HD. Just play a Hammond Design mouthpiece and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And to get the most of your HD experience, you should buy in bulk. I believe Carl has a pay for six, get six mouthpiece deal or three or ten, whatever. Check it out at carlhammonddesign.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you would take just a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcast to leave a star rating and a review. And doing so will help improve the visibility of this podcast and draw more listeners. If you want an affordable alternative to BACH and the Yammies without sacrificing quality and sound, then you need to check out the Eastman line of trumpets. I have my 824S B-flat, my 422 cornet, and my 512 flugelhorn, and I love all three of those horns. And I will say, they also fit great into my Messina covers bag. Just saying, you can find out more, of course, at eastmanwinds.com. I'd love it if you'd visit the Studio HFL website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. While you're there, go ahead and visit the merch page and buy a Studio HFL shirt for yourself and one as a gift for someone else. That is at studiohfl.com. You know, it isn't just the hobbits that like the Shires. In fact, had Bilbo Baggins had an S.E. Shires, he would have conquered Sauron in one movie instead of three. If you're going for that Middle Earth or a truly heavenly experience with a trumpet, then you need to check out both the Q-Series and the custom line of horns at seshires.com. You could own a horn that was made to rule them all. Messina covers. You know that feeling you get when your chops feel like they need saving? If only there were a product designed to save our chops. But not just any old lip balm is going to be a chop saver. No, it must be a carefully crafted concoction created by someone special. Someone who knows chops and how to save them. And thankfully Dan Gosling is that person and he did create something to save our chops and he expertly chose the most obvious and appropriate name of Chop Saver. You can buy some from ChopSaver.com and keep some in your Messina covers case. You know how you're on Instagram and all of a sudden Trent Austin pops up on screen with a trumpet and plays some ridiculous lick like it's nothing? Now, he doesn't do it very often, you know, maybe only twice a day, but it's killer. Austin Custom Brass are your place to find one of Trent's custom horns or to pick up a great horn that's there on a trade-in. Make it your biz to find out more at austincustombrass.biz. I'd like to invite you to become part of the Studio HFL community by going to Patreon and choosing from one of the four tiers of support. You can help to financially support the show for as little as $36 a year. That's only $3 a month. Benefits include exclusive access to interview excerpts, behind-the-scenes report, an invitation to be in the room with a guest during an interview, product discounts, and more. And of course, you can join the community of faithful supporters by visiting patreon.com slash studiohfl. Now, on with the interview.
Welcome. And I want to start out, uh, just let me know a little bit. Mm-hmm. Give us just a little idea of how you came to Indianapolis, the whole transition. Sure. Yeah. So I, I moved to Indianapolis um, end of the summer of 2016. And this was sort of after a kind of a lengthy process uh, of an audition. There was there was an audition for this principal trumpet job here in, I think, June of 2015, actually. And then there was multiple trial weeks spaced out over the course of that following season. So actually, I was playing in the Tucson Symphony at the time of the audition. And then uh, I think the trial weeks were spaced out, maybe November and then January, something to that effect. And then so uh, during that year, I actually got a one-year position with the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra. So I sort of moved to San Francisco that year and then kind of flew to Indianapolis to do these trial weeks and then ended up finding out that I got the gig, which was awesome. And so I sort of finished up the season of the ballet and opera in San Francisco. Um, I guess that would have been summer of 2016 and then moved to Indy. Uh, so I've been here since. Yeah. So, this so the San Francisco position, was that mm-hmm. also by audition? That was. That They had a sort of an audition for a one-year position um, for, for that gig. Um, and so it kind of just worked out that I was able to do that and then sort of transition uh, into here to start in, I guess, yes, the fall of 2016. So, so a lot of those one-year positions have the possibility of extending. Yeah. In San Francisco, had there been a possibility of? Um, I think would you have jumped on that I think um, that one may have been I think with that gig I would have had to re-audition at some point um, I believe I was kind of at the 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 mindset of the time anyway that I wasn't really necessarily looking at it as like a long-term thing only just because I I was in the running for this job here and I sort of was trying to trying to focus on that you know so it was sort of the San Francisco thing sort of just popped up and I just went for it but really with my eye turned to just focusing on hopefully locking this one down. So, um, yeah, and I've been here for now two two seasons, just finished up, so it's been kind of flying by. It's, and it's, granted tenure, finally. It's Yeah, hopefully, you know, it's kicking in, uh, I believe, in September. So. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. So, and, uh, of course, we've played together a couple of times, yeah. and it's just been a thrill to be able to do that. Uh, one of the things that I really appreciate is not just your musicianship, but you really are doing a great job of bringing cohesion to not just the brass section, but it seems like the orchestra oh, well. all together. And it's a, it's a really cool vibe oh, you know, when you walk on stage. Now, Indianapolis, I think, is unusual, too, because it's not, from my perception, an orchestra that is kind of at each other. You no, know, it's, it's always been a great feel. Super great vibe. To walk into that group. Yeah, and that's sort of what I first picked up on. I mean, I, I first came to Indianapolis... Um, yeah, I guess it was 2015, but like ever since I first um, met anybody here, uh, played here, anything like that, it was like the super warm vibe, and I was like, whoa, this is seems a little unusual in a, in a way, and so it's been really easy, I think, to plug into that type of energy and sort of just kind of build upon that, you know, um, it's, I mean, within the trumpet section for sure, but even, as you said, the whole brass section, but sort of the orchestra as a whole, it's it's been easy to just kind of pop into that type of feel and mm-hmm. and roll roll with that, you know, in a way, so. So, you're still young, you might not be at the pinnacle of your career just yet, <laughs> but you've obviously done some things extremely well to get you to this point. And, of course, that's your own personal drive, uh, but also has to include some really influential teachers along the way, some fantastic opportunities, some um, educational and playing opportunities. And I'd like to know 
uh, who you studied with, um, methods that they've used, uh, ways that those things have been adapted to you, or ways you've adapted those things to your mm -hmm. playing. And I know that's a pretty broad question, but it, can you speak to it? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try to, I guess, kind of go through the the history of it as, as sort of succinctly as I can. But I I first started out um, studying trumpet on Long Island uh, in New York, where I grew up about an hour or so from the city. And uh, my first trumpet teacher was actually a, a buddy of Phil Smith's. They played in the Salvation Army band together oh, and stuff cool. like that. And so he, he was very much of the sort of B-flat trumpet Arbenz type uh, slightly cornetti style tradition and so when i first started as a kid he was kind of my first main trumpet teacher and so i studied mostly arbens and things like that with him mm -hmm. um and then i just i guess i'll just speak to the classical side of things for now but you know my first trumpet teacher outside of uh this guy doug mendosha on long island was kevin cobb who plays in the american brass oh, quintet terrific. and so my junior year of high school i started going into juilliard pre-college to study with kevin and that Right around that time was the first time I've ever really had been around just a lot of super high-quality trumpet sounds up close, especially. I had taken a lesson, actually, with Ray Riccomini of the Metropolitan Opera in preparation for this audition uh, at pre-college, and that was sort of the first, like, full-time orchestral player I ever heard play a tone just, like, up close. And I actually remember pretty much nothing about this lesson except for... <laughs> We were in his living room up in the Bronx, and I was going to work on the Hindemith or something. I just hacked through this on my whatever. <laughs> and Ray's like, oh, yeah, let me just take a look at this real quick. And I just remember him kind of just like blowing through a couple things, kind of warming himself up. And like this something about hearing this sound quality up close, I just it like knocked me sideways. And, you know, that was that whole juncture kind of around that time. And then starting to study with Kevin was my first real exposure to the orchestral side of things and with kevin very similar thing a lot of arbens we do a lot of brant very sort of simple nuts and bolts type stuff and that transitioned well into um i think my college sort of years i studied the cleveland institute of music mm -hmm. and um my main teacher there was mike miller who was fourth trumpet in the orchestra I also studied with bob sullivan a little bit and and mike Sachs. Mm -hmm. and um that whole tradition in cleveland is very Sort of similar to how I grew up, a lot of a lot of B flat trumpet, a lot of arbens, a lot of real emphasis on just like deep fundamentals of just you know basic tone production, rhythm, fanfare style playing, uh, articulation, th those kind of things. You know, um, so you know lips uh, flexibility, all all the cult classic stuff. But it was a very like you know nuts and bolts, rust belt type of focus um, there. To that point, though, I mean, you mm -hmm. had to have your stuff pretty well together at this point. Uh, or were there specific things that you were addressing with these? Yeah, features? I mean, I guess to a certain degree, things were like working okay, um, I guess, for a Not 18 year old. I mean, you expose, you know, some flaws. In your no, life. no, I mean, I got plenty of flaws that we I could all expose all day. Yeah, no, no, no. But I mean, I guess, I mean, I was like functional, but I was definitely. I mean, as far as like a put together trumpet player, I I feel like I was nowhere that during my undergrad, really at any time, except for maybe towards the end of my senior year. But you know, I went through a ton of uh, transformations. Mostly, my sound was like the biggest thing that um, I I worked on and tried to develop during this time. But I mean, it was like you know, maybe I could articulate okay. My sound was like okay. All this stuff was sort of just like mezzo mezzo somewhere and i think that being around this type of sound quality all those guys in the cleveland orchestra and that type of tradition it really just 
becomes very apparent to you very quickly how much work you have to do. So I, I was a very, um, I mean, probably much to my own detriment in a lot of ways, but I really, you know, I tried to really work hard in college and, and spend a lot of time in the practice room wor- working on all these really basic kind of things. And, um, you know, it was sort of around the end of my time there. And then when I went to school out in Los Angeles after, after my undergrad, I studied with Jim Wilt at two years for two years at the Colburn School. It was a very small orchestral kind of type conservatory thing. You know, Jim is very much not that kind of a teacher like I had in high school or, or college. I mean, he would, you know, he wouldn't assign you stuff, didn't, wouldn't want to really necessarily work on fundamentals or things like this. It's not like he wouldn't value that stuff, but he was more of like a, you know, you'd bring something in, play it for him, and then he'd sort of teach you how to like listen differently to hear mm-hmm. the kind of issues that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. But it was all still very much kind of up to your own sort of work ethic if you wanted to really um, delve into those things pretty hard. But I would still, I mean, I, I had Jim go through certain types of Brandt things with me or Arbins, and I would kind of coax him into playing back and forth with me a lot because I, I would, you know, record these lessons and go home and then for weeks and even years after I graduated, listen to this kind of a thing. So that's, that's going to, towards one of the things I want to uh, query about, and mm-hmm. it's that the, the different learning styles that, that people have. You know, there are people who are visual. There are people who are aural. And everything I've heard right now is like you, you wait uh, or you want that listening experience. You hear that sound, and that's what you're trying to emulate. Yeah. And that's, am I right, is that kind of... Yeah, I guess I never really thought about what my style of learning was, but now that yeah, now that I'm like blabbering on about it, but hearing you just kind of dial it in, it, I definitely think that the way I've always operated is very much from an ear side of things. So it was really helpful. It was almost like, you know, I worked on all this building the cement bricks type of vibe in Cleveland, and then I rolled into L.A., started working with Jim, and yeah, like it was almost like the the back and forth thing is I think where I learned the most from him, you know, and I I definitely can learn from people saying certain things at the right time or in the visual imagery perhaps here and there but definitely for me the the yeah listening is the best way i think for okay, me to learn so. so let's travel back uh however many years it is to yeah. where you're picking up the trumpet for the first time or deciding yeah. that trumpet's going to be the instrument mm-hmm. Had you heard fantastic trumpet players to that point or, or poor trumpet players to that point? Yeah, I definitely had. I kind of had a weird journey to get to the trumpet, but I actually started as a cello player. Well, I wasn't really a cello player, but I started on Suzuki cello at age four, you know, dabbled in that until I switched to trumpet at nine. And I kind of just sort of stumbled into picking the trumpet. My grandfather played trumpet, and I think I sort of just figured that I don't know I don't even I'm not I'm not even too clear on how that happened per se but, but I can um, see where because Suzuki is such a an aural uh, process yeah I can see where that could have played a really big role in your learning style further on totally because yeah how how many books or years is it before the Suzuki student gets to opening the book yeah I don't think I mean I could, I could barely re- I don't even think I could read in six eight even by the time I was 15, it's like reading music was, I mean, I eventually realized like, oh God, I got to figure this out. And so, I, you know, and I started really focusing on that kind of thing. And now I can sort of read just fine. But like, <laughs> it was rough though. I mean, Suzuki, yeah, you don't learn how to read music and, you know, you kind of just learn, learn by ear. And so I always was very much like 
somebody played something, I could basically, it'd be easier for me to just like play it back to them by ear without looking at anything than if I had to like read it and then play it back to them type of thing. When, especially when I was young, I like fudged through so many trumpet lessons by like, oh shoot, I, um, Miss Madosha, can you play that actually real quick just to hear? And then I'd be like, oh, okay, there we go. I mean, I definitely had my aunt as a trumpet player. She's, um, also, she's kind of one of those Renaissance women type people. So she's a really great athlete, but also a mathematician and played trumpet really exceptionally well. And so I was used to go with my dad to their Christmas Eve services and sit sort of inside the brass quintet. And I had always sort of done that for years. Um, and I, I wasn't like the kind of kid that like when I picked up the horn, it was just this like burning desire to be on it all the time. And I was a little bit slow to the uptake on that side of things. But I do remember hearing my Aunt Janet play a lot even as a little kid and that sort of I think was always kind of in there from a, a hearing a good trumpet sound early on type thing you know but it sort of took me a little while it's like it wasn't until I was about 15 that I realized like oh shoot oh yeah this is what I want to do so am I gonna figure it out or die trying type thing but I was definitely not always that way like uh, my younger brothers were a little bit more like that earlier which was weird for me I mean I was like a you know, twelve-year-old kid working at the golf course in the summer, and they were just downstairs practicing tuba and trombone like eight hours a day. And I was, I was very envious of that work ethic and like love. I was like, man, I don't know why I, you know, don't like to practice or I, blah blah blah, you know. <laughs> and so I was always like looking up to my brothers, kind of in that in that way. Um, it eventually, kind of kicked in, but I was a little late to the party. I think, you know. Well, but, in the long run, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it all it all kind of comes out in the wash, and sure. for everybody's sure. personality styles. And so, I do want to go back uh, because mm-hmm. I have a son who's in uh, Suzuki violin right now. And, oh, nice! And just maybe to clarify for some listeners that, yeah, Suzuki starts off being wrote, taught mm-hmm. uh, for quite a while, but uh, they eventually do get into reading. Mm-hmm. And I'm quite impressed right now that uh, in, even in the first 10 lessons of reading that he's already reading compound meter. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, that's better than I could do so, well, by a lot. Better, right. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, it, so I want to give uh, the Suzuki method credit. Uh, it's not purely a rote taught method. But uh, yeah. um, the other thing I love about uh, Suzuki is it seems to produce some fearless performers you know, because you're from the beginning, you're asked to yeah, you gotta, stand gotta just there go and, for it and go for it and yeah. perform, right? Yeah, and you got to just give recitals as like little kids and stuff. And so you, you talk about your progression of, of teachers. It's really from coast to coast. What you did, it's yeah. Were, were these um, teachers that you directly sought out, or were these people that your teachers said, "Okay, I think this is where you need to go next"? Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of a mix of both in a way so the way I wound up in Cleveland um, so I was studying with Kevin in New York at the time and I was at this point I still was convinced I was going to just go to college and then move back to New York if I wasn't going to college in New York and just try to be a jazz trumpet player that was like my sort of goal Uh, Kevin was not like um, it's not like he was discouraging me from being a jazz trumpet player but his point to me as a 16 year old was like look you know, it's great that you're interested in that, maybe more so than classical trumpet, which was totally the case. But, you know, it's a lot easier for you to dip outside of a classical trumpet undergrad and, and play as much jazz as you want than to do the reverse, mm-hmm. just in case you end up wanting to do classical trumpet uh, later. Because, I mean, he, he's not wrong about this. And actually, in hindsight, that was a really huge defining moment uh, for me in a way, because, I mean, I went to, I decided to go to a classical 
mm-hmm. college and sort of follow his advice. And he was totally right. I mean, my first two years at CIM, I mean, I, I wouldn't mail it in. I really took my lessons seriously and trumpet class seriously, but the orchestral classical side of things, I just was not into it. So I would just spend all my time playing with this little jazz trio I started and studying with all the people in Cleveland and going to concerts. And like, I couldn't have cared less about pursuing like an orchestral and, but Kevin was right. You know, you, you do all your classical studies and it's easier to, to go outside than it is to just study jazz all day and then go try to play in a Mozart pickup orchestra or something. Cause it just doesn't, it, just the way that, environment works it's easier to just hop into a jam session than it is to just hop into a classical revolution or you know you know what i'm saying yeah it's like i I do but you know one of the things uh, when i have students come to me and say you know i want to study this or that or the Mm -hmm. other i say look it's all about style yeah when it comes down to the basic part of it we all blow through the little little end the sound comes out the big end and whether you're a jazz player or a classical player the fundamentals are still the same so you know, it isn't it really as long as you can get the efficiency down, the the tone production, the then the musicality is whether you decide to, to swing it or play it straight. It's whether it's Brahms or bassy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely when, you know when push comes to shove, that's sort of where how it comes out in the wash, you know. But I, yeah, I think it was it's kind of thing where I I was like kind of just going through the. I eventually started to take a turn, obviously, to go a way different direction. But it was about, I guess, towards the end of my time at Cleveland that I started realizing, like, oh, I actually want to do at least sort of more of a 50-50 type lifestyle where I'm playing both, you know. But getting to Cleveland in the first place, anyway, I I got way diverted. But (laughs) Kevin was like, Cleveland Orchestra's in town at Carnegie. Get get your brothers. Go to the show. you got to hear this. I had never heard them before. So we got this, like, absolute nosebleed seat. First half was Mozart, which, as much as the second half, blew me away. I never heard a string section like this, and especially in Carnegie, it was just like unreal. And then the second half was Bruckner Five, which I didn't never heard in my whole life. And so you know, it starts off this soft cello, you know, thing, and then this brass chorale, and again, never heard anything quite like this. It's a very different style of playing than the New York Philharmonic, and it was just something about this orchestra. I just it was literally in that moment I was like, if I can figure out a way to get into this school, I... I and, and sax is in the, the lead seat. Yeah, it? yeah, sax, uh, Sullivan, everybody was in the section at the time, and I was like, I got to hear this org. I got to like be as close to this orchestra as I possibly can, which was kind of an interesting thing for me to feel at the time, especially because I was still so thinking I was going to just only really become a jazz trumpet player. And, um, yeah, so that's how I wound up in Cleveland, of all things. And, um, yeah, and it... That was sort of the the one of the few times where a teacher was like, check this out. And he wasn't like, you have to go study with X, Y, and Z, but Kevin was just encouraging me to at least. And then similar thing, I mean, when I was in Cleveland, I was like figuring out what I wanted to do after, and Los Angeles seemed like a good city if you wanted to try to play in a lot of different styles. And uh, both my teachers, you know, Mike, Mike Miller and Mike Sachs were very supportive of this. And it was sort of, I mean, because of Colburn's sort of financial package, but also specifically I had heard of, had some friends that had studied with Jim before. And so I really wanted to, to study with him specifically. And that was kind of like from the, my teacher side of things, it was like, yeah, of course, go study. That's a no brainer. I mean, it's great, great, blah, 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 great school, everything. And he's, he's awesome. But I was like, something about the way this guy plays, I was really, drawn to this and I was like I really would love to study with him if I could swing it kind of thing you know so I remember hearing uh, Kevin with American Brass Quintet oh, yeah 
And then I bought, I think the album was called One. Oh, yeah, where he does all the solo trumpet stuff, yeah. What an absolutely gorgeous sound. And it reminded me of Phil Smith. Mm -hmm. The very first recording I ever heard of Phil Smith was The Unanswered Question. Oh, yeah. You know, just one of the most pure sounds you can ever hear come from a trumpet. So when I hear you say that Kevin's telling you to go study somebody else, it's like, okay, so now you get an idea of who he epitomizes as a player and what kind of sounds... Yeah, it's just kind of interesting thread to follow to see who who, uh, who really listens to and enjoys the other. Yeah, totally. It is it is wild to kind of backtrack and see the and actually funny along those lines. Jim and Mike Miller both studied with the same uh, teacher Eugene Blee in Cincinnati uh, mm-hmm. as each other, which is a wild thing because those are both guys that I studied with totally. Uh, nowhere near Cincinnati you know it's like similar type thing where it's just like wow what's the what's the chances you know Mm -hmm. so it's kind of a wild a wild thing so so uh, how long since you've had some serious in school study um I guess when did I finish up I guess fall uh, spring of 2013 I guess I graduated from Colburn and then moved to Tucson Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah it's what year is it now well whatever it's been a little while it's been a while yeah so now I'm not trying to get you to uh, divulge anything you don't want to. Oh no, I'm so, I'm pretty so open about. I, I tell my students I'm always seeking to learn something new. I'm taking lessons with whoever I can, whenever I can. What's your situation? Are you looking still to, to oh. go study with somebody? I mean, yeah, or? whenever I can squeeze it in. I mean, there's there's been a handful of people that I mean, I I as much as I can, I always kind of check back in with both mics in Cleveland uh, in, at different times in the year, just do some playing together. We, usually with that type of thing, a lot of it will will be just like kind of blowing through some stuff together or things like this. Um, but I've had some specific things that I've wanted to work on with different people over the last handful of years that I've sought them out in different cities or things like that. And I've seen Jim a handful of times, you know, especially if I was getting ready for auditions, I would go from Tucson to see him before Indianapolis or San Francisco, whatever. And always play for him before an audition. Um, I guess I'm trying to think most recently what I've got cooking. There's a, there's a friend of mine who's a former teacher of mine, Joe Bergstaller, who I, I absolutely love, but I just, I kind of made a trip to go see him to work on some stuff that I've been kind of, circling in the last year or so um you know so i'm always yeah i'm very much kind of always going that way i mean you definitely compared to being in school versus out of school i mean you're way on your own even if you're taking one lesson a month compared to the way school feels you know but you know jim and mike miller both were very kind of not hands-off teachers but i was sort of always a little bit in charge of like monitoring my own i guess assignments or whatever you call it but I, I guess I was pretty comfortable always with sort of taking care of myself uh, um, in that way, which I think really helped me because when I got out of school and didn't have a teacher all the time, I didn't flail and be like, oh, God, what do I do now? Um, but I'm still always looking to study and, you know, I mean, I'm like a avid, I guess if I had any hobbies besides like eating and drinking, it's like watching YouTube master classes <laughs> or things like this. I'm, you know, I'm, sure. I'm way into that kind of stuff. So, so okay, um, you know, people think orchestral trumpet, it's kind of this one large lump of, of an idea of, of playing. But you went from Tucson to San Francisco mm-hmm. from what most people would consider their typical orchestral atmosphere to mm-hmm. not 
right? Because ballet or opera yeah. is a completely different animal. That was wild. And, yeah. you know, so what kind of a learning curve was there to acclimate to the pit? There was definitely one for sure. I mean, I, you know, Tucson was kind of a, a really cool first job in, in so many ways, but playing first trumpet there on a lot of big rep and then also having the, t- the downtime to travel to sub in other places, I was getting a cool mix of playing first trumpet, but then also having to play third or second or other things when I would go sub places and stuff. And so I kind of always had some section playing kind of floating around, but the gig in San Francisco was playing second trumpet. And so not only are you playing second trumpet sort of full time all of a sudden, but you're in this pit environment, which is like, couldn't be more different. And so I kind of, similar to what we were talking about before, I sort of just did my best to just kind of lead with my ear as far as just like, all right, be on the constant alert to just adapt to style or how this feels versus close sound versus far sound because all of a sudden, you know, the acoustics are different up close versus how it sounds in the hall. I mean, luckily, that was kind of an easy place to plug into just because the principal trumpet there, Adam Luffin, he's actually also a former Cleveland guy, but comes from a similar tradition that I do. And he's so solid and really such a fabulous player that it's like, those kind of people are easy to to lock with, you know, and same thing goes for sort of the whole brass section there. So on the one hand, there was definitely a lot of adjustments I made, I felt like, you know, internally, but the overall of it was like, oh man, these guys are great musicians, just plug in Mm -hmm. the best I can as far as just a musical standpoint and it sort of takes care of itself. So there was sort of a yes and no side to just like a a learning curve because on the other hand, it was just like, oh man, this is great. Just playing, I mean, playing 32 Nutcrackers is a lot, (laughs) but if you have to do it, that's like the best crew you could do it with kind of a thing. So, which I didn't realize at the time, but that was totally getting me ready for Yuletide and here doing (laughs) however many shows we do. It's a... Mentally similar type type thing. So I uh, just want to think back. Um, mm-hmm. Have you gotten to play Bruckner 5 yet? You know, Bruckner 5 is one of the Bruckners that I still have yet yet to play. And it's, iron- like, ironically, it's one of... I think it's probably one of my favorites in part because of that first experience. But it's it's really one of my favorite symphonies of just any, any symphony, any composer. Um, and I do like Bruckner's music overall. However, I, I really love five and I've only gotten to play four, seven and nine. So I got a few more to go, obviously outside of five, but yeah, five, I'm looking forward to the day that that kind of rolls onto the stand. So Very cool. yeah, we'll see. Not a lot of people do it, but so uh, let me ask you Conrad now, as, as far as, uh, your teaching, what opportunities do you have to, uh, influence other people? Yeah, well, since moving to Indy, um, I've kind of had a very small, just private trumpet studio of sort of young college uh, and high school-ish age, I would say. Um, Not a ton of students, not because I don't like to teach, but just because with playing schedule and stuff, there's only sort of so many hours I could devote to that in a week. But um, So outside of that, I've done just some, you know, master classes here and there at some various schools that friends of mine or the trumpet professors at or something. And this coming year, I'm actually going to be uh, filling in teaching at DePaul University just, um, I think, for a semester or maybe a little bit longer than that. And I've, you know, taught for Rommel a little bit here and there when he goes out of town at IU. And so not a ton of teaching, but it's something that I really enjoy. So whenever I can stuff it into the schedule, I I try to. Um, Have you found any of your previous teachers coming through? Oh, totally. Lessons? Yeah, totally. 
Yeah, and I can kind of almost feel who's coming through and when, depending on what kind of stuff I'm working on. I mean, if I'm if somebody wants to come to to play excerpts or something for me, or if they're getting ready for an audition, I tend to go into pretty hardcore Jim Wilt mode, which is like a lot of playing and sort of helping them start to hear things a little bit differently that might influence the way they practice or stuff like that. But if it's a if somebody wants to work on something else or if it's a younger student that's sort of building their foundation still, I, I find I dip a little bit more into the uh, older school Cleveland style of things where I'm trying to really impart just a good basic uh, approach to them. You know, I don't really feel like I subscribe to a, a school of playing. I mean, I, I use Cleveland as, as if it is one, but you, you sort of know what I mean. It's like I, I don't really have like a particular method, but I do believe in certain types of fundamentals uh, pretty strongly. And so I try to just, you know, just tailor my approach depending on what it sounds like somebody okay, so needs. That's um, from a teaching standpoint. You know, so let's let's talk about uh, fundamentals mm-hmm. on a daily basis for you. Yeah. Uh, so my, I've kind of, I guess my fundamental routine sort of is, um, has been kind of similar actually for a handful of years now. Um, and I have about four or five routines that cycle themselves through depending on what I feel I need or what the schedule sort of demands of me on a weekly basis. There's there's two things that pretty much I always do at least once a week. Um, one of those is sort of a, a fat Arben's routine that usually happens on Mondays. That's kind of like my sort of rebuild the foundation day because uh, we're off from the orchestra and usually I have enough chops to spend a little extra time on that kind of playing on Monday. And then I have a routine that I made from the David Zouder book that also finds its way into my weekly stuff at least once or twice. Um, and then there's about three or four other things that I've developed over the years that sort of float in and out depending on what I feel I need. Um, a lot of it, uh, there's a routine I made from the Flexus book that John McNeil and Laurie Frink put together that's sort of a shorter one that if I really need to jumpstart things in the upper register or flexibility, I kind of hit that. Um, I have some other kind of... I guess you could call it more flow type things. I don't tend to practice a lot of that stuff anyway, so sometimes I need to insert these uh, stamp style uh, things into the routine. But yeah, I would say mostly it's it's been a slow moving, not slow moving, but slowly evolving thing. I, I'm kind of careful to add new stuff in. I really want to make sure it has a purpose and helps me get to where I want to go as far as whatever trumpet playing goals I have. But it's mostly Arbens based, really. At the end of the day, I would say um, nothing too fancy, cool. you know, that that type of thing. Right. Welcome to the middle of the episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina Covers. They offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags, mouthpiece pouches, and more. And their customer service is excellent. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And now back to the interview. I mean, I think you got the gist of it, but yeah, I mean, my basic thing with fundamentals is like, you know, I think we all tend to build our routines or our foundation of playing based on what we grew up with at the time that we're really forming, you know, I mean, what you do in college, I think really sets the base for the rest of your career in some ways, but, um, and ultimately I think it's just about finding, you know, what what your body needs, what your embouchure, what your style of playing is, and then you figure out stuff that's going to really fortify it and then also give you a, a platform to, to make improvements. I mean, everybody is way different, and I am sort of half a creature of habit slash half a creature of likes to change things up. I mean, some people would 
can't stand to do the same thing every day. For me, there's a certain, you know, uh, context that you set up by doing at least certain things enough so that you develop a, a baseline of consistency. And then when you want to make a change, you have a, a platform to stand on to sort of make an adjustment. So, I mean, I have tons of things that I'm constantly working on. And this same Arvin routine that I've been doing since 2009, in a lot of ways, although people might think that could become mundane to do the same 45 an hour set of exercises. I mean, I change up articulations and dynamics, things like that. But, you know, what your focus is on can really drastically change the way that routine is going to feel. And then at least you have a physical basis to, to, to build off of. So for me, that's been something that's been helpful. And that's, I think, why I have it sort of pinned down to about five or six things. And I, I'm always interested to see if I, what could I add that right, that might kind of juice the system. But it's been helpful to me to just be like, okay, you know, today I'm, or for the next three weeks, my focus is to really get sort of my uh, immediacy or how, how fast the sound is happening at the front of the notes. That's the focus. And it's like the Arvin routine is a perfect way to work on that because you're literally just playing scales and fanfares and slow long tones for an hour. And, and it's really, it's simple enough that you can focus on these very basic skills that you want to get better at instead of having to worry about doing it while you're doing pyrotechnics or whatever other stuff. So, you know, that's kind of how I wound up doing this. But I think everybody, it's important to, to know, to understand that everybody has to be different in a, a little bit just because our trumpet is so physical that everybody's jaw, everybody's face is just different. And it took me a little bit to, to start to get to a place where I was comfortable being like, you know what? What's working for me doesn't seem to be the stereotypical standard or what mouthpiece I play is not the whatever, whatever it would be. But it's important to feel comfortable to be like, you know what, I got to do what works for me and just sort of roll with that at best you can. You know, it doesn't mean to shut off to outside things, but it, there's a certain point where it can be unhelpful to just be like, well, this worked for this person. So I got to just keep cranking it out mindlessly. And, you know, it's only so long. Yeah. If you were to take all of your routines, you said five, yeah, roughly, yeah, and even in different stages of evolution for each mm -hmm. of these routines, yeah, and line them up side by side, would you see some um, some elements of each one of those that were consistent from day to day to day? Yeah, I think so. I I definitely um, I would say that my approach, as far as just like what I'm going for in the sound feel. Those types of things, I would say, is consistent enough that in a weird way, even though, let's just say if Arbenz is on the far side of the spectrum of the routines, and then let's say Flexus is on the opposite one, whatever approach that I'm bringing with the instrument and from a sound concept standpoint and what I'm trying to get out of the bell is consistent enough that it doesn't feel as far across the spectrum as it might seem on paper, you know? And so I think you could approach Flexus from the standpoint of the way they wrote the book which is really flexibility for the for an improviser so that you have in your chops the ability to kind of just do whatever your mind wants on a split second notice you know and at the same time I sort of took the book actually John McNeil gave it to me when I was taking lessons with him as a you know knucklehead 19 year old jazz trumpet player over the summer and I actually didn't use it for many years until this LA studio guy sort of mentioned something about it and I was like oh I think I have one of those and I just made this sort of orchestrally approached 30-minute routine out of Flexus where I'm approaching the book differently than John even had me go through it with him many years before. Um, but 
then you can sort of introduce new things, but still kind of keeping that thread like you were talking about. There's like a consistent type of thing that pulls it all together. So I think kind of how you approach it can can maybe accomplish that, but that's hard to know. But. Well, you know, even if you don't have Clark 1 or Clark 2 mm-hmm. in every routine, I would say you're you're always focused on your sound. That that's probably got to be a given. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, in, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, a lot of the all the issues that I'm working on on a daily basis, so many of them, this, this my my sound or how I sound on a certain thing is my indicator of what's working or what's not. You know, I'm for me, it I feel like it gets a little dangerous if I get too analytical about mm-hmm. what's actually really going on here. Sometimes it can be helpful, and I got plenty of problems, so it's kind of like. I try to find a balance between making f- actual physical adjustments, I mean, whether it's to my posture or whatever else, but still trying to always lead with like, okay, if it sounds healthy and sounds like what I'm going for, chances are the physical stuff will take care of itself to a point, you know? So I, I think you're totally right. That's definitely my number one focus, you know, uh, on a daily basis. So let's talk about uh, people that... Uh that you enjoy listening to, maybe uh, you epitomize. Um, I'll start by just saying, Sergey. You know, that's for me. Yeah, that's that's just exquisite playing. It's the model of efficiency. Oh, but man. what you know? What about for you? Oh, I still remember the first time I heard his No Limits record where he plays the Sanson introduction in Rondo, <laughs> and that sort of just. Like ruined my life for about a year. Just listen. I mean, in an amazing way, of course. Um, well, I mean, you know, it's kind of sort of floated in and out over the years. But when I was younger, the the big influences from a, I guess, how should I phrase it? I mean, the first people that I really listened to that I actually was like, oh my gosh, I'm actually captivated by this because I really was not enjoying classical music all that much for a while, but. Rolf Smedvig and Empire Brass absolutely for sure has been my earliest influence and the most constant of, of anything. I mean, that's still listening to Empire and Rolf specifically. Um, th- that's been maybe the most consistent thing throughout my life as far as just uh, what I'm listening to on a weekly basis. Uh, I mean, I don't think a week goes by that I don't spend at least an hour and a half listening to Empire something. Um, I, I may have to edit this out uh, mm-hmm. because I'm not sure how to describe it, but I remember the first time I heard Rolf play and I didn't mm-hmm. know who he was. I just knew it was Empire Brass. Yeah. But moving from note to note across the horn was not like anything I'd ever heard before. There was, And I know he wasn't articulating, but there, mm-hmm. was, there was just this element of his playing. First of all, the sound was gorgeous. Yeah. But it was just... Everything slotted so beautifully. I mean, maybe he was articulating mm-hmm. uh, on some of those things, but uh, do you do you know what I'm? Yeah, I mean, he he yeah he has a real interesting way of kind of yeah he like he moves through the instrument. I think different than most anybody else. Most people, I there there's something really really special there, and it's you know his his overall product. Like all the great articulation, great sound, his insane lyricism that was like sort of, like you said, super slotted, but also didn't feel like a trumpet. And I hate to use that type of cliche, but that all packaged itself with this unbelievable flair and vibe. And I think it all, what you were left with was sort of this mm-hmm. real and um, really astounding mm-hmm. player, uh, you know, and 
so that definitely is the thing that rises to the top for me maybe over anything else really just when I have to like look back through the last 29 years you know <laughs> but I mean in high school I spent a lot of time listening to the American Brass Quintet as well and Tom Stevens uh, Kevin Cobb turned me on to listening to Tom Stevens's recordings and that transitioned well into sort of moving to Cleveland and because Mike Sachs one of his big influences was Tom Stevens and so there was a real kind of link there from like a sound concept standpoint and I also spent a lot of time listening to Phil Collins's recordings from his time in Cincinnati and Jim Thompson during the time he was in Montreal especially and so all those things sort of swirled together and then when I met Jim and started hearing his sound up close I think that was sort of the final uh, keg in the wheel or spoke in the whatever that, that sort of kind of pulled it together for me and all those things I think swirled into just whatever I squirted out as um, but those are the people that come to mind from my at least mm -hmm. uh, classical side of things you know um, jazz side of stuff I, Clifford Brown is probably the, the most similar like on the he's like the Rolfe of jazz for me as far as the most constant influence and you know that also kind of dovetailed with some of my more modern trumpet influences a trumpet player from Cleveland Dominic Farinacci um, is one of my favorites and somebody I got to know a little bit while I was living there and heard live play a ton and he has a really strong Clifford influence also and it's I think no accident that when I'm like ha hacking around there's some of that floating around in there somewhere I don't know but so do yeah. you still get an opportunity to uh, feed the creative side on, on the jazz trumpet yeah every now and then weirdly enough this job here in Indianapolis I think I actually more than most orchestral jobs that I've heard of or done in this country we, we do so much of that style of music that I've actually played a lot in that way here and I never really expected that you could have an orchestra job and be this involved with other styles but um, this has been really fun in that way because I mean from a chop standpoint I don't really have as much chops as I'd like to outside of the gig to just go blow down three jazz sets on a Saturday after, and then wake up and then play Mozart Requiem on Sunday morning without like airballing every <laughs> note. So, I, you know, I have to kind of manage the physique and unfortunately that's the only limitation. I mean, you know, I would love to be playing more of other styles, but there's only, you know, so much that you can do on a trumpet before you have to start protecting certain types of elements of playing, you know. Well, it's but, a responsibility of your main job. I mean, you've right. Got to you know, I mean, I'm sure, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but if I played flute, maybe I could go play like a salsa gig on Sunday night after a matinee for fun and then wake up Monday and still feel okay. Mm -hmm. But if you do that on a trumpet, it's mm -hmm. going to take you until Wednesday to get your low G back. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like a little bit of a, you know. So, but yes, it feels fed, I guess, to a point. So that that makes me ask uh, or lean towards the question of this move by your maestro to start including natural trumpets and natural horns into the orchestra. Yeah. And did you have any background or experience there before the request? I, I did, luckily, just because it made the, um, I think attempt at using these instruments a little smoother than it would have been but actually when I was in school in Cleveland um, Carl Albach uh, who's principal trumpet in Orpheus and St. Luke's and fabulous New York freelancer he was in town subbing with the Cleveland Orchestra and did the trumpet class and kind of I don't think he knew any I don't know if he thought people would take him seriously I don't know if anybody did maybe except for me but he made this comment kind of off the cuff like yeah and if you get a chance to study Baroque trumpet you know you really should and for some reason, me and my little, like, you know, knucklehead, eager beaver student, I was like, oh, okay, all right, I'll do that. And so I, you know, luckily 
had no idea before this, but Barry Bogus, who's one of the premier, you know, Baroque soloists in, in America, happened to teach at Case Western University, which is the school sort of attached to Cleveland Institute of Music. And they owned all these horns, and there was a whole Baroque orchestra there. So I just asked Barry if I could take some lessons, and so I played in Baroque orchestra for three years there. That's a perfect storm right there. It was wild. And so I hadn't touched a Baroque trumpet since I left Cleveland, but when this sort of um, request kind of came down... Uh, from the music director, it was sort of like, well, this will be a challenge for a variety of reasons, just because we're, you know, stuffing this into a season. So there's other things to consider there as far as what we're playing the week before and after. I mean, there's a whole myriad of things that we've had to juggle, but ha- having at least played this instrument for a period of time at some point definitely did come in handy. And if you would have told me, you know, 10 years ago that someday I'm going to have a job playing in an American orchestra where I'm supposed to be playing broke trumpet and improvising <laughs> on a frequent basis, I, I would have thought, oh, that's not really a thing. That's not possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I would have pr- worked on my excerpts and practiced classical music a little harder <laughs> earlier if I knew that this could be a thing, because this sort of, in a weird way, is like kind of like a dream job for me from a musical standpoint, mm-hmm. just because I really am getting to, to do a variety of things much more than I had in any other orchestral mm-hmm. kind of... You know, it's certainly not a gig. C trumpet only kind of job. Definitely not. Definitely not. And someday I might just go full London Symphony and start playing everything on B flat. But that's <laughs> that's down the road. And I think Bob would kill me if you heard this interview me saying that. But anyway, I'll make sure I leave yeah. that in. Then. <laughs> you know. Okay. So I, I won't name specific names, but I will say that I know you have a great supporting role or supporting cast. Oh, totally. And uh, and you know that because you mentioned you were a second trumpet player in San Francisco and you understand the importance and the difficulty of being a second trumpet player. So even though your role now is as principal, mm-hmm. um, you have that appreciation. You know what they want to hear and you know what you want to hear. And I think you guys work that out pretty well. Yeah. I mean, I it's something that is really important to me like as a as a first trumpet player i think that you know i think the givens are you know you're responsible for dictating the nuts and bolts style articulation releases dynamics the threshold of dynamics both loud and soft there's all that kind of stuff but i think that's sort of the given of what that what you need to do in that role but the things that always were most important to me when i used to play first trumpet in tucson and then i have a job playing first trumpet in a summer festival orchestra that i do every year and then also here is, I think you're really responsible for setting the tone of, I, I, or I guess just setting the vibe of the way people interact, how, like, how does it feel on stage and playing not first trumpet in a variety of places and getting to play second trumpet to a lot of really great first players. Something that always I noticed was like, wow, okay, of course they're doing a great job of making it easy for me to just play the instrument and know where to put stuff but really they're shaping the way it feels as a brass section and the way people interact and uh, you know how do you get things done do you have to yap at everybody or can can there be a sort of more musically directed way that you shape stuff and that was always the kind of thing that for me I think was most important to try to figure out a way to do a good job at playing first more than even just the you know playing the solos or playing high notes or playing the, the you know leading the charge from a style standpoint or whatever else i mean that stuff kind of comes with it but um anyway so i guess that sort of goes to your point i think i i really know how it feels to a certain extent to just be in the different roles in the section so i want to make everybody feel comfortable and 
also I want to be very clear with my you know body language or playing styles that there doesn't need to be a lot of unnecessary you know mm-hmm. extra stuff really so that we can just have a good time and kind of yeah. go for it you know are you having a good time yeah oh man I mean any day that I'm above ground and playing trumpet is a pretty good day uh, you yeah. know um, yeah. but it's kind of like you were saying much earlier but this there's a lot of great people and I think at the end of the day if, you know if you're working with people who are really sweet and have a good attitude that's pretty much more important than almost anything else you know mm-hmm. because who wants to make great music when you're miserable because everybody hates each other I don't, I don't know maybe some people thrive off that but I definitely yeah. am not one of them I mean it's hard enough to just play high and loud notes all the time but you know you don't need extra baggage on top of it yeah. you know so you know I, I think Indianapolis is unique not just the symphony but I mm-hmm. think Indianapolis is unique in the music scene and, and I don't know anything really outside of the jazz and the orchestral the mm-hmm. music scene here is really diverse yeah but there's not that cutthroat uh, atmosphere here and and I've had other friends mm-hmm. who've come from the east coast that are like man this is this is really strange here everybody's nice everybody treats each other you know respectfully and, and of course you know we all know there's there's that guy that's out there that kind mm-hmm. of breaks that uh, but uh, I think it's really cool to be here. Oh, yeah. Great place to be. A lot of people underestimate Indianapolis. Oh uh, man, totally. In a lot of ways, we're not just the Colts. We're not just cornfields. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's like the town of silent killers. I mean, I, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, even one of our, our our sort of first call guy that has been, I mean, both in the section for many one years, but also is sort of. Uh, kind of an honorary member really at this point from playing but uh, Alan Miller is a, mm-hmm. is a great example of like the sort of silent but deadly type of person who's like super warm really solid professional as a person and then just absolutely will tear your face off with the quality of his playing yeah. but really in any in any style and it's like that was sort of you know that type of a vibe is sort of something that I always look up to to just be like man that's that's the kind of you know thing that you want to epitomize you yeah. know if, if you can help it you know yeah. so it's been lucky to be around people like that obviously within the section and then with around town you know um, well I've been fortunate to be able to observe uh, a little bit mm-hmm. the age gap makes no difference in your section because you're replacing somebody who's been there for I think I did the math he was in the first he was in the principal chair for 39 years yep and just retired after 41 years, mm-hmm. and which makes him a lot older than you. <laughs> but uh, seeing you guys interact and and that uh, changing of the guard seemed to be just a pretty cool thing to observe. And the amount of respect both ways, uh, I think, is is commendable because uh, I don't think you'd see that uh, everywhere. Yeah, no, I and and that's much more of a testament to to Bob and Chappie's personality and character more than anything that I've been involved with because I mean, yeah, to come in as a twenty six or however old I was, you know, year old principal trumpet. Um, I mean, the ball's in my court to a certain extent as far as how I'm going to operate, but really, it's like the way they treated me. I think really sets the dynamic and then if I'm not an idiot you know I figure it out real quick that these are great guys that are treating me really well you know and especially 
uh, and so I obviously picked up on that immediately and was yeah. really excited to, to be able to be a part of that um, because that's not always the case where a principal trumpet retires after many years, plays assistant, and doesn't vibe the new person. You know, I mean, I I felt really lucky to be um, in that type of an energy, you know. I mean, because kind of, I guess I already said it once, but it's like it's a hard enough job to just do. <laughs> Last thing you need is bad vibes floating around. So I think it's a real, it really just speaks to their quality as, as people the way that they've treated me since I've gotten here so I'm yeah I'm, I'm really grateful for that you know well Conrad I think anybody that will listen to this podcast will certainly sense the good vibes coming from you yeah. um, and I hope that if they haven't had a chance to hear you live I hope they get an opportunity whether it's at Hilbert Circle Theater with ISO or in some sort of jazz setting yeah. <laughs> we'll get a chance to hear you and, and to meet you and uh I just want to thank you for sharing all of this today. It's been a delight to talk with you. And, uh, well, yeah, thanks for having me. This is absolutely. awesome. So happy to be. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be a part of it. All right. Thank you. So awesome. Well, that wraps up today's interview. Thanks for being here. I know your time is valuable, as is mine, and I'm grateful that you spent some of that listening to this podcast. Please visit Apple Podcast and leave a rating and a review. And if you'd like to support the show financially and receive some cool benefits, you can find out how at patreon.com slash studio HFL. Thanks again to my show sponsors, Messina Covers, Hammond Design, Pickett Blackburn, Eastman Winds, S.E. Shires, Austin Custom Brass, and Chop Saber. I'm Larry Powell, your host. Thanks again for being here. See you next time. This has been a production of Powell Music, LLC. Thank you.